Good morning, one and all. We're glad to be together again to uh, look into God's Word as we try and gain understanding of the relationship between Christ uh, and the church today. We started this last week, and we will continue in this particular subject today as we consider how we are impacted uh, as a church by the work of Christ. So we had a, uh, we, last week we, we looked at how the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about the inauguration of his church in Matthew 60 as he promises that this church will come into being when he said uh, to Peter uh, that I tell you, you are Peter, after Peter confesses that he is Christ, the son of the living God, he says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That was in Matthew 16 where he makes that tremendous statement about building his church. And we notice a couple of things about that statement. It was that he says that he will build his church, which will tell us two things. Number one, the church was not existing yet. The church was still a future entity, and that it will happen because he had deemed it to be so. Secondly, he said that he will build the church. No one else builds the church, although the church grows and, and has been founded... Um, and has, and has moved from strength to strength and from size to size, he is the one who does the building. He is the one who has authority and the power and the right to build this church, which is, in fact, his body. He is the head, and this is his body, which he builds by saving people, by changing lives permanently, by redeeming them, by reconciling them to God, by giving them a new life, and they become part of the church, which he is building. And he said that he will build my church. That is his church. I mean, he's made this comment more than once that very often people who are pastors, elders, leadership, leaders in churches seem to think of the church as being their church. Um, if anybody comes and does me to my church, I'll sort him out. It's not our church. It's not the church that belongs to any man. We are simply under shepherds by God's grace. And he has given us the role to, uh, to serve as servants in, in leadership. But he owns the church. It's his church. He will build it. He has built it. He continues to build it. And it belongs to him. We remind ourselves too that this word church, as we use it today, is derived from two words. The first one was kiriakos. And that reminds us that we are a people that belong to the Lord. I'm not going to go through all of that again. We went through it last week. But it, go, it reminds us that we are a people, a group of people that belong to the Lord. There's a second word from which church is derived, and that's the word ecclesia, and it's the one that's used the most in the New Testament. Uh, it's used of other gatherings too, but almost ex to the greatest degree of the church of Jesus Christ, and we use in the sense of us being an assembly or a congregation, particularly an assembly. So we are an assembly of people, people who are gathered together in this way, who are uh, part of the body of Christ, uh, and as a local assembly we gather in this way, but we are also part of the, of the extensive um, so-called invisible body of Christ, which includes every single uh, blood-bought uh, believer today. So those were the two words that we, 
derived uh, church from, and we remind ourselves of that. I also took time to remind ourselves of that slide of the church age, and we virtually ended there last week, but just a quick reminder, um, this was just a pictorial representation of the fact that the church starts in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, which speaks about the Spirit arriving on the day of Pentecost. Question was asked, why Pentecost? We didn't get a chance to answer that. So very simply, Pentecost means 50th, and, it's, and, and Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. So in the Old Testament, <coughs> the Passover was celebrated on the Sabbath, and then seven Sabbaths later, the day thereafter, they celebrate the Feast of First Fruits, which was part of that feast. Uh, but it's a feast tied to the Feast of Harvests, and it was 50 days after Passover, which the Jews celebrated as that feast. Uh, they called it the Feast of, uh, of Weeks, uh, and it was a, a celebration. That gets carried over into the New Testament when we see that those are antitypes. They foreshadow a more significant event of the Passover, for, for first of all, when Jesus Christ died. Remember that when he instituted um, the Lord's Supper, that was the last Passover, as far as we're concerned, in the Old Testament uh, um, uh, context. Because here they start, he instituted the Lord's Supper, and um, the next day he was crucified, which was, on, which was on the, just before the Passover on Friday, so that he was crucified. And we know that, that he, then, he then became the true sacrifice that was representing the Passover. The Passover was... Um, a lamb was slain, a lamb was killed to, to remind the Jews, the nation of Israel, of their release, their freedom from Egypt. Uh, and a lamb was slain to, uh, to commemorate that year and year, year on and year on, generation by generation. But when it came to Jesus Christ, he became the true lamb, was slain on that Passover. And 50 days later from the, from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the day of Pentecost. So, and there is a strong... Um, uh, uh, Shadowing in the Old Testament of his first fruits. So this we see the church being coming coming to being, the church being born. And we see the first fruits of the church in that sense coming into existence. When the very first um, uh, group of people, disciples who came out of that time when they walked with Jesus for three years, all the disciples were gathered at Pentecost. And the reason why there were so many people at Pentecost was because they come together for this 50th day celebration. And the disciples are dwelled by the Holy Spirit, and the church is born. And so we remind ourselves of all of that uh, last week. Um, so I want to move on that. And I left last week, I left you guys with a statement. Uh, and I asked you about this, and perhaps we have some responses now. And the statement was this. The church is the community of all, of all true believers for all time. The church is the community of all true believers for all time. Is it a true statement? Have some of you thought of that? All right. So, this definition of the church is based on the, on the reasoning that the church is made of all those believers who are truly saved. And as I said last week, this is a quote taken directly from Wayne Gruden, where he says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5.25. And here the term church is used to apply to all those whom Christ died to redeem, all those who are saved by the death of Christ. So he's linking the word church 
with all those who are saved. But that, but that must include all true believers for all time, both believers in the New Testament and believers in the Old Testament age. So he's saying the church extends from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Is that right? Do you agree with, do you agree with Wayne? So if you do, what you're saying is that the very first proclamation of the gospel was there, right? Genesis 3 verse 15, the Proto-Evangelion. And many people were saved after that. There were many who were saved. In fact, um, right from Genesis, people are being saved. Uh, they are becoming uh, a part of God's uh, kingdom. They, they are saved in the sense that they are God-worshippers. And by faith, they come to uh, salvation in, and they worship God as God worships. In that list of, of believers we have in Hebrews chapter 11, um, uh, Abel, um, Abraham, David, and all the rest of, of, of his family, we find that they've come to salvation. They're part of that group of people who are saved, are considered to be saved. They are called the Old Testament saints. Then, the last we have of people being saved, or any regular people being saved, will be just before that. With the Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, chapter 7, verse, uh, verses 7 to 15, we have the final judgment, and no one gets saved after that. So, between those two uh, biblical references, people are being saved. Are they all part of the church? Uh, we have to consider that this morning, because that's where we left last week. Last week, I, I, we had the sense of the question being, well, who is in the church and who is not in the church? And this morning, I'm going to just go through that as quickly as I can. And I want to say this right now, this is a wide subject, it's a vast subject, and there's something we're not, there's a lot we're not going to be able to cover, I'm going to focus on something specific, so if you ask some questions, we may have to answer them now, we may have to answer them at another time, but we're going to try and focus on just to try and identify when the church existed, and how, and are they part of Israel, are they not part of Israel, because that's important, we live in the time when that's becoming more and more blurred, and this church holds a specific position. We are called dispensational premillennialists. Now, a dispensational um, uh, views may, may have a little bit of nuances on it, but definitely we believe in how God has worked through time. Uh, he's worked with different people, uh, in that he has identified some of the people he has worked with, and we see some of them this morning, but we are premillennialists, and that view holds that the church and Israel are separate. They work differently within God's economy, both are considered to be people of God, and God uses them, but they are not used at the same time in the same way. So let's look at some of that this morning and see if we can get an understanding of that before, uh, before we leave. So here's an overview. <clears throat> God, creates, God creates everything in Genesis chapter 1. He's king over his creation, and all of creation is his kingdom. So understand God is the king of all creation, and it starts right there in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 1. God created man. He makes man his vice regent. And that, that is, he's given, man is given the delegated authority, the right, the privilege to rule over creation as God's representative. That was Adam's uh, delegated authority. He was the vice regent under uh, God's authority to have dominion over the world. He wants to do this by obeying the commandment of Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, which says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish, over the sea, over the birds, 
of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So man had dominion under God's authority. He was God's vice regent and he would rule. There was, God was king, but God had a, a lesser king, as it were. Because rule is a word that is associated with, king, with, with a king, a ruler. And we had this kind of a lesser king on the earth. But we know that man failed, and man failed miserably through sin, Genesis 3. Man failed his kingdom task when he sinned in Genesis 3. And sin brought about a separation between God and man that negated the complete fulfillment of Genesis 1, verse 28. So today we find that man no longer has the kind of dominion and rule that was intended for him to have in Genesis 1, verse 28. We know that because of sin, uh, the ground no longer just yields uh, fruit and food to him willingly. He has to earn his food by the sweat of his face. It's hard because the ground that brings forth thorns and thistles. And man no longer has the full dominion over, over, over animals because we know that, that many of them uh, we cannot bring under our control. We bring dogs under our control and we bring cats uh, sometimes under our control. Um, we do try and tame certain wild animals, but we know that there's always a danger. And, he has, and we've seen evidence of it happening. It's always a danger. You can tame a lion, you can tame a tiger only as long as he tolerates you. And then he doesn't tolerate you. And that dominion that we have over him is gone. So, man failed in that area because of sin. And, uh, and it seems that things have fallen to pieces. But that's not the case. Just because sin interrupted God's command for mankind didn't mean that God would leave things as they were. He had a plan of restoration. God worked out this plan by establishing several covenants. And we're going to look at a few of those this morning. Uh, this is an expansive study. Uh, we'll look at a few to try and, and identify how, how Israel fits into God's plan, a historic plan, where the church fits in and where things come together at the end again. So it's going to be an overview, and it may not cover all the questions you have, but we can see how, how far we can get with as much as we can. So, a covenant um, is a formal agreement between two parties with obligations and regulations. That's a very general uh, definition of a covenant. It's very similar to what we have today as a, a will or a testament. Um, but when it comes to biblical covenants, they, are, they must look at them very carefully for uh, two reasons. Well, for one reason, there are two things. One, you can either have a covenant that is bilateral, which means there's an agreement between the two parties, and we have that covenant as uh, we see in the Mosaic Covenant, where God has a covenant with the people of Israel, a condition that they keep to the law. If they break the law, the covenant is broken. So that was a bilateral covenant where two parties agree, and if one of the parties breaks... Uh, any part of, the, of that covenant, the covenant then is not in void. God never breaks his part of the covenant. Man does. But there's another covenant which is called a unilateral covenant. Uh, that covenant is binding uh, on the parties, but it's dependent on one person. Only, only one person in that party is uh, um, responsible, is uh, able to, is authorized, is empowered to keep that covenant in place. That's called a unilateral covenant. It's unconditional, it's irrevocable, and it has to be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled. So the four covenants that, uh, that we see that are unilateral 
are these four, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Those are unilateral, they irrevocable, they unconditional, and they will be fulfilled. Because the only person that holds that covenant, that, those covenants in, uh, in force is God himself. Just briefly, uh, the Noahic covenant um, is a covenant set up between God and Noah, and we're not going to go into that much, too much this morning, but it purely is a covenant set up between God and Noah after the flood. And God establishes a covenant that he will never destroy the world. And so the covenant is really for the whole world. Um, he establishes a covenant with Noah, and he says that never again will I judge the world in this way by waters of the flood. And it will be an everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh on the earth. So it's a, it's a universal covenant, but God is the one who makes it and God is the one who maintains it. In fact, uh, that covenant is significant today in, in, in a number of areas. Uh, for instance, that covenant uh, established the stability of nature. God said the world will not be destroyed again. The world will continue to go on as he has designed it to go on from that point onwards. Nature is stable under the hand of God. I know that we all think that nature is falling to pieces, that global warming is going to pull us down. We all want to go out there by orange shirts and walk slowly in front of cars down Adley Street. It's, 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 it's really Looney Tunes come to town. Uh, it's, it's people that's unrealistic about what is really happening. So... Nature is stable under God's and nature will continue to be as it is. Seasons will come, seasons will go until God decides it's a time to end it when he will destroy the world in his way and it won't be with water. Number two, that particular covenant said multiplying for the earth. It flies in the face of what we see today. Today people say we have to reduce populations. Bill Gates, George Soros, these are to reduce populations. No, God says full, multiplying for the earth. All these things that we see happening today goes against, it's, it's, it goes counter to what has been given to Noah in the covenant God established with him in Genesis uh, when he said, I will never destroy the world again. Um, animals will fear man, we know that. Uh, since then, animals do fear man, and when you go to animals, they run away from men. Generally, animals run away from men. They only attack you when they are cornered. Uh, animals become food to man. Baba veganism. Careful of veganism. Veganism as a, as a belief system is a dangerous belief system. Um, vegetarianism is fine. But when veganism says that uh, we cannot eat meat and we should not eat meat and there are very reasons to give it, remember that by, by God, under God's uh, covenant, animals become food to man. Uh, man's life is sacred, uh, which means that the life that we have is sacred and we can't just deal with it as we want to, which means that abortion is wrong. Uh, man's life is sacred. From the whom? From conception, the life is sacred. And lastly, capital punishment is, is instituted. So when you do wrong, it's worthy of death, you should be killed. And the world has flipped that. They, they kill babies in the whom, but they give murderers a life in prison um, at the cost of, of a huge amount of money. So, so the, I didn't want to go far into no, the Noah covenant, but I think it just opens the door for so much things to think about today. When those very things are the things that's being challenged by the current culture, worldview, uh, and the system of the world. So, let's see how quickly I can get to the next few things. The Abrahamic covenant is the first covenant that we want to look at. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. 
And I'm going to make three points about this covenant. Uh, this covenant is made between God and Abraham, but God is the one who makes the covenant. And he promises uh, three things that are significant in this covenant. He makes a number of promises, and some of the promises are, are, uh, have extensions to them. But there are three things that are critical to, to, to understand. Number one, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, um, he speaks about a promise of the land. That is critical. That God has promised this people a land. Uh, he, says to, he, says to Ab- he says to Abraham, go from your country to a land I will show you. So even before the, the birth of the nation of Israel in Egypt, uh, Abraham leaves Ur of the Chaldees, uh, and he goes from his country, and by faith he follows the Lord to a land the Lord will show him. That, um, that promise is... Um, is repeated and confirmed in Genesis chapter 13, where the Lord says to Abraham, uh, after Lot has left him, he says to Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give you, and to your offspring forever. Now, where God says, I will give you, it isn't a promise that maybe if things are right. This is a promise that is based on the on the veracity of God's holiness and His promise, I will give you a land to you and your offspring forever. The second thing that, that is significant about this promise is that in verse 2, uh, the, there's a promise of descendants from whom would come a nation and kings. Uh, Abraham's promise that from you will come, from your loins, through Isaac, through Jacob, there will come a nation of people, uh, nations in fact, and you, there will also come uh, kings. That promise is again repeated and reaffirmed in Genesis chapter 17, where God speaks to Abram about being 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I'm God Almighty, who walk before me and be blameless. And I'm going to make my covenant between me and you and then multiply you greatly. Then Abram found his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Uh, remember that at, we know of at least two, right? He had two sons, and those two sons were two different nations, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. Um, but he's a, he's a father of whom will come many nations, and kings shall come from you. So God reaffirms that Abraham, through Abraham, a land was, is promised and will be given to Abraham and his people. And to Ab- Abraham, a promise is made of descendants, uh, and from whom there will come kings. And that's important to remember that king promised to Abraham. And number three... God promises to Abraham uh, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he promises, there's a promise of redemption. Um, that promise of redemption is reaffirmed and, um, and, and repeated in Genesis chapter 22, where we know the, the event is uh, uh, God calls Abraham to himself, and he says in Genesis 22, verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham the second time from heaven and said, by myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this, and if not withheld your son, your only son, Abram has not offered Isaac, although Abram was told to offer Isaac, and Abram literally had the knife in his hand when God said to him, don't kill your son. But Abram showed the willingness to give his son as an offering to God. That faith and that obedience uh, God acknowledged. And it says in verse 17 of chapter 22, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, 
and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And that blessing that is from his offspring, which gets picked up later by Paul in Galatians, where he speaks about who that offspring is. So, quickly, that is the covenant given to Abraham. Uh, those are all the essential promises given to Abraham. That's given to Abraham when he leaves Ur of the Chaldees. That's given to Abraham before the nation of Israel exists. Uh, it's a promise given to Abraham by God. The question is, is this, is this covenant still valid today? That's a testing question. Is it still valid today? All right. Can I reserve my answer? We have reserve our answer. Okay. We come back to that because I want us to go home with that in our minds. The second covenant that we look at is the Davidic covenant. And I know, oops, I know I'm going through this quickly, but we have to just get this graphs, and I'll try and show you the last slide how we draw this together and make some sense of that. So the Davidic covenant is what we find recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. And here, the covenant is made between God and David. And the covenant follows on something that David wants to do. David wants to build God a house. David feels he's living in a lovely house of cedarhood. God's living in a tent. He wants to build God a house so God can live in a place that's, that's better than where he's done. And, and God's, God says, that's not for you to do. You're a man of war. Uh, the sun coming after you will build my house. But I have a greater, um, I have a greater intention for you. Uh, God had an intention for David, which he had no idea what it was. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, we read this. Um, and this is coming through, through, through Nathan the prophet. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your forefathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will, dis I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. The 16 is critical. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with these words, and in accordance with all of this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So, there's a couple of things in this, in this, in this, in this, uh, in these verses. Uh, we know, for instance, that there's a personal uh, a promise made to David that David would be um, he become a person of renown. It's also promised to him that he'll have a son. Now, in the, now we must, must be very careful in this particular case here. The son is Solomon because it says, and he will build a house for my name. And we know that that Solomon built the house for the Lord, the temple for the Lord. And secondly, it says down in verse 14, I will be to my father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. So that could not be speaking about the son still to come, a son who would ultimately fulfill the, the role of being David's greatest son. In this case, it's still referring to Solomon, because the Lord Jesus Christ would never be disciplined uh, with the rod of men, with stripes of the sons of men for, 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 for sin. However, um, David desires to build his house. God reveals to Nathan that, that, that the prophet, to the prophet that Solomon will, will build the house, and not David. David's got a more significant uh, role to play. And so, with David's covenant, there's a promise of a son who would rule, verse 12, 
is also a, an earthly throne that will last forever. Uh, that was in verse 16. So, although the rule of David never continued uninterrupted, um, it was interrupted by the Babylonian uh, uh, captivity. Although it never uh, continued uninterrupted, there was a promise that had to be fulfilled that his rule and his throne would be forever. A second question. That Davidic covenant, is it still valid today? So, I've asked those two questions, and I know that you won't answer, and I'm not saying you must. Just keep it with you if you want to. We'll try and get to that a little later on. So we have those two covenants before us. Both those covenants were established, ratified, put in force uh, in the Old Testament, unilaterally by God, unconditional, and God made sure that on the basis of His own personhood, those covenants would come to fruition. So a quick review. We said that um, the Abrahamic covenant started in Genesis 12, verse, uh, verses 1 to 3. We read about the, its, its inauguration there. That rolled into the Davidic covenant because it's the same nation that's now uh, involved, uh, being used by God, rather, as a better term, to be His people, His representative people to all nations. That is why Israel uh, was birthed. Uh, not only that God had the people whom He could show His love to, but that that people who show the world uh, what God, what was, what kind of God they served. In fact, when um, kings saw the way God dealt with them, they very often said that, "Oh, the true God is with Israel." They saw God's power, and when Israel was at its height, uh, it represented uh, a picture of a people blessed by a true God that was really honoring to God. They never maintained that; they fell by the way. Let me know eventually we're going to captivity, but. They were God's representatives, and we find from, a from Abraham the first covenant is, is, is made, a promise of a nation, and a promise of a land, and a promise of a coming son, and with David as a promise of an of a, uh, eternal throne. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says something very interesting. Very first verse in the New Testament. Who knows what it says? The book of the genealogy of the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and so we see in the New Testament we see that those covenants are start uh, are being brought into focus, but through the person of Jesus Christ. So those covenants uh, are significant because even when it came to the New Testament, we find that those men are recorded as being the ones. Uh, who, in whose line Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Adam. That we call the first advent. Can you see that red circle? It's very faint. Can you see a red circle? No? Okay, sorry about that. Uh, wrong color for this screen. That is uh, the first advent. So that, those two covenants ran into the first advent, into the first uh, part of the New Testament, as we know, uh, we know as the Gospels, because we remember... That when the Gospels came into being, or let me rephrase it, when the times that were lived, that is, as they called the Gospels, existed, they come out of 400 years of silence, and people were still living as Jews, uh, still going to the temple, still worshipping God as Jews, but the nation was now under bondage 
They were under the usurped authority of, of Rome. Um, they were no longer free, and, they, and, this, and the nation was in a state such that they had to be called to repentance. And we find that the first person to do that is in Matthew chapter uh, 3, verse 1 to 2, where you find John the Baptist uh, comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John the Baptist continues that role of Old Testament prophets by becoming the voice calling people to repentance in the wilderness. John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet. The, the Old Testament is still in force in the sense that it's a continuation out of the Old Testament as a prophet comes, is, raised up, is raised up a God who can give the call of repentance to a nation that's gone far from God. What's interesting is that the very next person that says the same thing is the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the kingdom message was still being preached and this is still being preached to the Jewish nation. So God has not given up on his people. God has not set them aside at this point uh, where he is not speaking to them. In fact, he's speaking to them very clearly. He's calling them. And he calls them through John the Baptist initially, who is a forerunner of Jesus Christ, and then in Jesus' entire ministry, up until the point of, the, of that Passion Week, uh, just before he dies, he proclaims the same message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we see right through the Gospels, Jesus and John do exactly that. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, we find that a change takes place. In Matthew chapter 11, the Lord speaks woes on the cities that, uh, that reject him. In Matthew chapter 12, he, he rebukes the people for accusing him of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub. And by the time we get to chapter 13, uh, God has turned from them. And he no longer speaks to them clearly. He then speaks to them with, in parables. And, and it says this in verse, in verse, uh, verse 13 of chapter 13 of Matthew. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of, of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, or repent, and I will heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. So the call to repentance was not only rejected by the people, but the, 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 the leaders of the Jews rejected Jesus in such a way they accused him of something which uh, was impossible to even conceive of. And at that point, we find that there's a movement away. And soon, from that point on, we find that there's more attention given to now reaching the other nations. Any questions? Byron. So can we say that the old covenant still so the what? The old covenant. So it applies. We just look at, we look at my notes. <laughs> no, you're right. And we're going to get there. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. So you say that the Davidic covenant still applies, and so what about the Abrahamic covenant? Do you think that still 
applies, to use your word. My word was valid. You don't know? Okay. So let's see. Before we get to that, there's a new covenant which comes into being. Now here's a big picture of what happens. Up until the Passion Week, Jesus continues to preach the message of the kingdom. Jesus eventually is rejected by the nation of Israel as both Messiah and King. They don't want him, remember? He came into the city at the, the beginning of the week and they cried, Hosanna to the king, Hosanna to the king. By the end of the week, he's hanging on the cross. Above his head is an is a inscription written by a Roman uh, governor, Jesus, the king of the Jews, and his own people say, Away with him, we will not have this man to rule over us. So they reject him completely, and we find that Jesus Christ eventually dies on the cross at the hands of those who were his people. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 14, we have this um, uh, new covenant being brought into being. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them in Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 15, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's the last Passover. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Let's look at a future revelation of the kingdom of God. And when he took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we did that every Sunday, every first Sunday of the month. This is what we do to remember him. And likewise, the cup after he eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. And the new covenant is a promise that God will forgive sin and restore fellowship with those whose hearts are turned toward him. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, and his death on the cross is the basis for that promise. So now, there's an Abrahamic covenant which is, uh, which is um, instituted, given, and held together by God. There's a Davidic covenant which is instituted, given, and held together by God. And now there's a new covenant which is also a covenant that is irre irrevocable, uh, must be fulfilled, and uh, is unilateral. So, this was not something that was a surprise to the Jews. It should not have been. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So, Israel was the recipient of the new covenant. Remember, it was given to them. Jeremiah says that clearly, uh, Though, although all the unconditional covenants, Abrahamic, David, and New, were intended to extend to the Gentiles too. The Gentiles were never, ever excluded from the benefits of the covenants in God's mind. Although, initially, they had come to the nation of Israel only. The institution of the new covenant is followed by the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that, right? We know that after, he, after he proclaimed those things, he was crucified and he died. And last week we reminded ourselves that that little graphic showed us that after his death and his resurrection, the church was instituted at Pentecost. The arrows coming down show, represents the coming of the Holy Spirit. The arrow going up represents the rapture. And the red line in between? The church age. The church age is bookended by Pentecost and the rapture. Now, I'm going to come back to Byron's question and to the questions I asked you before. Is uh, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant still valid today? I didn't ask if it's still in force today. I asked if it's valid today. 
So let me try and clarify the point. The very next event that's going to take place after the church goes home is that one. It's called the? The? The tribulation. Seven years. Seven years of tribulation. Who will be the witness in that time? Who is going to witness? Who will be witnesses for God or of God during that time? How many? No, those are Jehovah's, those are Jehovah's witnesses. It can't be the Jews. <laughs> so Jews, 12,000 from every tribe. 144,000 Jews will become the witness because the church is no longer here. Where is the church? The church is in heaven. The church is, is at that point in time in heaven, and the church will be going through various things which we're not going to cover today. It'll be covered another time. But the church is not here, but God has always promised to have a witness, and God has always promised to have a people. Uh, and God, again, at the time of the tribulation, He raises up those 144,000, and they become the witnesses for God. Revelation chapter 7, verse 4. That is immediately followed by the greatest war of all time. It's cosmic in the sense that we, will, we cannot imagine. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. And who's going to fight that battle? So who comes to, yeah, who comes to, who comes to vanquish every nation, every king, every power, and every force? Jesus Christ. He comes. He comes, and He comes to vanquish every, every power on earth, no matter what they got, and they're going to all aim their guns and warheads and things. Believe me, uh, we think of this as just Armageddon. It's going to be a, 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 an event of cataclysmic proportions. Jesus comes. Who comes with Him? The church, His bride. Who comes with them? An angelic army that is hard to describe. And so Jesus comes and he, at, at, the, at the end of the tribulation period, at the end of seven years, comes and he sets up his throne on earth, his reign on earth, which we know as the millennial kingdom. A thousand years of reign, of peace, of equity. When he will reign, but he will reign with true equity. Those that do right will be blessed, and those that sin will be judged immediately. It's going to be a, a time of blessing, but understand clearly, Jesus reigns on the throne as king, as supreme authority, and he deals with sin instantaneously. There will still be sin in the, in, in the, in the millennial reign. It's hard to believe, maybe, but understand this, that going into the millennial kingdom, there will be adults who will have children at the time. Those children will be born in sin, as every child is being from Genesis chapter 3. And those children will be subject to sin, and they will grow into people who will sin, and those who sin will be judged immediately. And those who do not sin, they enjoy the blessing of the uh, millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom, and he's sitting on the throne of David in the restored temple on earth. He's not reigning from heaven, he's reigning from earth. He's king on earth. Every eye will see him, They'll know where he is. Nations will come up to Jerusalem to worship, and they will behold not only the restored temple, they will, they will behold the king, David's greatest son, sitting on the throne and ruling. Those of you who are worried that the temple can't be built because there's a rock on the dome on the rock, don't worry about those things. God works things that you won't believe, so don't worry about those things. But in this period, there's some things to remember. 
The king is on his throne. And Israel occupies the land. Because during that time, Israel is over the nations. So the 12, the 12 apostles are, are ruled over on 12 thrones over Israel. Israel rules over the nations. And the church with Christ rules over all. It's in a tremendous time that we, that's going to be ours. And it can only be yours if you are in Christ today. Because once we pass the rapture, and you've heard the gospel this out of the rapture, then your chances are shot, to use a very colloquial term. And so we have the, the end of the church period going into the tribulation, followed by Armageddon, which is not shown there, followed by the, the millennial reign of Christ. So I have seen that in the tribulation, the Jews do come back into focus, but in a way which is not yet possessing the land, in a way which is not yet in a way that they rule, but eventually we find that the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant all, all synchronize and it continues as, as that in the, in the, after the, um, the tribulation. So the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant is valid today but not currently in force. It gets people back into force when Jesus Christ comes to earth, he sets up his kingdom, he sets up his reign, the nation of Israel is then given the authority to reign. They possess the land from the north, from the Euphrates River in the north to the river of Egypt in the south, whichever one you want to choose it to be. And they go from west to east and they occupy the entire land promised to Abraham. And nobody will put them out of that land. It will be theirs not only for the time, but for all eternity. And so we find that God's plan eventually rolls out with the Israel being part of God's plan as his witness up until. Uh, uh, the, the, the Gospels, and as I said, up until uh, the Passion Week, because up until then, they're still, they're still practicing the, 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 breaking of the, the Passover. The church is conceptualized at, Pente at Pentecost. The church runs for as many years as it takes for the rapture to take place. The church goes home, and then after seven years of the rapture, uh, Israel comes back into the promises made to their forefathers, David, and Abraham, and so the nation becomes again a force to be reckoned with. They will be permanently uh, a force uh, under God's hand on earth, right into the eternal state. They don't lose the land. Uh, Christ doesn't. They don't lose the king. Christ remains king on David's throne. David will have a role to play, uh, but Christ Himself is the supreme king on David's throne, and that is um, briefly what's going to take place over the next couple of hundred thousand or so whatever years God decides. Questions besides Byron's question. Byron didn't answer your question. Or did I miss you? Is, is your question or Keenan's question? Ask. Yes. On the... Yes. Yes. No. It's a thousand years. By year 999, people start worrying what's happening next year. Like year 2000. So the significance. So why, why is it important that the thousand years ends? What happens after the thousand? What's the next immediate event? Revelation chapter, chapter 20. So it has to end. It's a, it's a specific reign for a specific time for a specific reason. 
and things are re-established under them, but at the end of the thousand years, so the thousand years starts like this. Um, Armageddon takes place. Not only are the earthly uh, uh, armies vanquished by Christ, but the, the beast and the full prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. Satan is then locked up for a thousand years, he's chained up. After the thousand years ends, Satan is released. And guess what's going to happen after a thousand years of perfect life? People are going to flock to him. And immediately after that, uh, in that same space, the judgments take place. And the great white throne judgment takes place. And all, everybody who has died without Christ, everybody who has, has died without uh, God are raised from the dead. They stand for the great white throne and they are judged according to works and according to the scriptures. And then they and Satan, who has just been released, are cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. Then we enter into the eternal state. I can't show all of those on that screen. But the thousand years starts and finishes with very, with very unique, specific events in the beginning and at the end. And thereafter, we enter into eternity, the eternal state, where nothing changes, uh, where God is put in place, remains in place at that point. Denver. He reigns, yes. Yes. Absolutely. We established. Yes. Correct. Absolutely. So if we didn't make that clear, that, that is, that's that's a specific right there, but he never stops reigning. He's king of kings and lords of lords forever. Uh, remember, who is the one in whom all creation has been created? The son, right? And eventually the son gives that back to the father, and we read in, in First Corinthians, but then the father blesses him and makes him indeed uh, lord and king forever. He reigns supreme, uh, and we will be reigning with him. It's 10 o'clock. Byron's taking up all the time for questions. Uh, let's have a short break and then we'll come back in two minutes.